Stonewall Jackson's Horse, Rock Island Express Robbery, Labor Trouble, and Kentucky Mines, Judd Reed Was Wrong, Assassinated in the Streets, and much more for the 16th of March, 1886, in A Year of Crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time, in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. Now, this first story is not a crime story. It's just very interesting. Stonewall Jackson's war horse has just died from old age at the soldier's home at Richmond, Virginia. He was 35 years old. Mr. Norman V. Randolph, president of the board of the Soldiers' Home, wishing to have the remains of the old horse preserved, has summoned taxidermist Webster of this city to Richmond to mount them. Mr. Webster will bring the skeleton and skin to this city and do his work here. Murder Trial The city court jury in the case of Lafayette Chamble, charged with killing his half-imbecile brother, came in yesterday afternoon bringing a verdict of guilty of murder in the second degree, with punishment fixed at 13 years imprisonment. They had had the case all the night before. The prevailing opinion among those who heard the testimony is that the prisoner ought to be satisfied with the verdict. It looked more like a case of murder in the first degree. London, March 15th. Richard Belt, the sculptor, was today found guilty of misdemeanor and having obtained money of Sir William Abdi by false pretenses. It was sentenced to a year's imprisonment at hard labor. His brother, Walter, jointly indicted with him, was acquitted. The Rock Island Express Robbery, Joliet, Illinois, March 15th. By comparing notes, Conductor Wagner and several passengers of the train aboard of which Express Messenger Nichols was murdered Saturday have accepted the theory that the murder and robbery were perpetuated by four men, three of whom boarded the train at the Chicago Depot and the fourth at Blue Island. Two of the men traveled on a pass issued to R.D. Martin and one good between Chicago and Kansas. Before reaching Juliet, the conductor became convinced that the men were suspicious characters and asked to see their passes again. On a second inspection of that issued as above stated, the conductor noticed that it had originally been dated 1884 and that the last figure of the date had been neatly covered by a letter bearing the figure 6. Upon this, he refused to return the pass and ordered the men to leave the train at Joliet. They did so, but are believed to have boarded the train between the baggage and express cars just as it pulled out. No clue to the men has yet been discovered. Accidentally shot, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, March 15th. This evening, John Edger, an employee of the National Tube Works, was fatally shot by A. Wider, while rehearsing a drama at Turner Hall, which was to have been presented by the Turner Literary Society this evening. The shooting was per purely accidental. It seems that an old shotgun, supposed to be unloaded, had been procured to practice a drill, which was one of the requirements of the play. When the order to fire came, the gun was discharged. One side of Edgar's face was torn away, including an ear and almost the entire nose. E. Schwer, who was standing nearby, received some of the shot in the face, but was not seriously hurt. Mr. Edger was carried away unconscious. He will die. The play was postponed indefinitely. Labor Troubles at the Kentucky Mines, Louisville, Kentucky, March 15th. A special to the Courier-Journal says, The soldiers sent to relieve those guarding the convicts against the free miners at Greenwood Mines in Pulaski County arrived safely at midnight. Someone threw two bombs at the Sentinel. One exploded, but did no harm. 
A search revealed no one to be in the vicinity. All is again quiet, though trouble may arise at any moment as the miners are determined and desperate. The Failure of a Wrong The Chinese were ardently welcomed during the early period of their appearance in California, for washerwomen and cooks and servants generally were sorely wanted. At a later date, the people of the Pacific Shore have come to the conclusion that they could do without them and have pursued most discreditable and indefensible measures to get rid of them. It appears probable, however, that the country there is more dependent upon their services than they know, for important inconvenience is felt in some of the districts from which the Chinese have been driven. The Oregonian of Portland mentions some facts of such a nature. The Oregon Improvement Company has closed all its coal mines where $40,000 a month was paid in wages. The culture of the hop was becoming of importance, but with no Chinese to pick that business cannot be carried on, and the fruit growers are in the same dilemma. The fish canning enterprise is in a similar condition, the lumber business is embarrassed from the same cause, and the clearing of lands is obstructed. There are whites that should carry on at least part of the work the Chinese have been driven from, but the Oregonian gives just such an account of them as might be looked for of creatures who have been guilty of the atrocities the Chinese have endured. It says that where those people have been banished, the conditions which led to that policy are not bettered. Violence against the mild-like and bland has only increased the manifestation of evil dispositions, making more prominent the spirit of idleness and loaferism that lies behind their whole emuet. for the outburst of fury against the Chinese was an effort of ignorance and passion influenced and misdirected by demigods. An outspoken exposure like this, like a rift in a cloud, shows what is behind. Well-conducted industrious men would never have exhibited the ferocious instincts that have been displayed on the Pacific border. If the treaty by virtue of which the Chinese had full right to visit our land and remain upon it in security as long as they choose is objectionable, it is open to abrogation or amendment. Those who preferred lawless violence to legal redress may naturally be expected to be just such creatures as our Oregon contemporary describes. A Criminal Nashville Banner The Banner addresses its many thousands of readers today as a convicted criminal. It is true that the offense is technically termed a misdemeanor, but crime is imputed. And what is the crime which the Banner has committed and for which it is made to pay the penalty? We will tell you. We are convicted for daring to expose the damnable outrages and inhumanities which have shamed and disgraced the state of Tennessee under the odious lease system. For assailing the abnormal, infernal, inequity of a system of abject human slavery which by its shameless indignities is unparalleled cruelty and its heartless deprivations drove its victims to death to fill the coffers of insatiate greed for reaching out a helping hand to the miserable wretches who for years had been turned over by an indifferent and heedless state government to cruel taskmasters who demanded their sweat and blood for bringing about by its published exposures of corruption and cruelty, a long-needed reform in prison management, and opening the eyes of the people to the unspeakable outrages that have been committed boldly and rebuked in this state, for defying greeting monopoly which was fattening on misery, and for facing its millions and its influence in an unequal fight for the public good. This is our crime. If to have done this is a crime, we are proud of the distinction. It brings no blush of shame to our cheeks. For whatever may be the rulings of honorable courts, we stand today acquitted before the bar of public opinion. Judge Reed was wrong. Nashville Union. 
We print this morning the opinion of the Supreme Court delivered Friday, deciding the point of law so hastily anticipated by Judge Reed two weeks ago. The union then said that it would have been becoming in Judge Reed to await the action of the Supreme Court, as it was well then known that the court had it to decide at once. Now they come, and as suspected, decide the law to be the other way. Judge Reed turned the Memphis Express robber loose on a writ of habeas corpus, and under the Good Time Act of 1885, which on its face was inoperative until accepted by the leasee, and now the court holds that, as the leasees had not accepted it, it is not in force, and so the express robber goes free before his time is out. Did Judge Reed know these leasees had not accepted it? Accepted it? Was he not put upon his inquiry to know they had not? We are left to conclude that the Honorable Judge seized this opportunity to fulminate politically as he would lose the opportunity to use the campaign thunder contained in his remarkable document, which he declined to allow the Union to publish, if the Supreme Court should get to its case before he got to his. Assassinated in the Street, Mobile, Alabama, March 15th. Charles Richard, a member of a prominent Hebrew family, was assassinated early yesterday morning on Hamilton Street. There was a row on the street in which Richard interfered with the view of stopping it. He was fired on by an unknown party in the street and died almost immediately. A boy named Ben Schaefer has been arrested, but rumor has it a man who was jealous of Richard came to the place determined to kill him. His name is Naylor, but he cannot be found. Not guilty. That is the verdict in W.P. Farr's case, Correspondence to the Appeal, Fulton, Mississippi, March 12th. Circuit Court has been in session here all this week with a heavy docket. Only one case, however, that has created much interest, a murder case. W.P. Farr charged with the killing of Walter Copeland. The case occupied two days. General J.A.L. Henley, District Attorney, prosecuted in an able manner with Carter and Carter of... Iuka defending E.S. Candler, Jr., made one of the finest arguments ever heard before this court, surpassing the logic and eloquence of many much older lawyers. E.S. Candler, Sr., made, as usual, a fine argument with force and effect. At the close of the argument, the jury retired, and after one hour and a half, returned a verdict of not guilty. Thus ends a long and much-discussed criminal case. The people here are all rejoicing at the success of Honorable David Johnson in being elected superintendent of the penitentiary. He is one of Atawamba's able men and fully deserves the place. Business dull. Okay, I don't know what the end of that was all about, but that's what it said. Imprisoned for trespass, special to the appeal, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, March 15th. A special from Little Rock to Mr. J.M. Taylor, the attorney of the road, states that Judge Caldwell imprisoned Editor C.S. Treadwell 60 days in the county jail and cost of the proceeding for trespass on the property of the Texas and St. Louis Railroad heretofore reported. Newspaper thief caught and severely whipped by a subscriber's hired man. If one or two more of the subscribers of the appeal would take the course pursued last Saturday morning by Dr. F. L. Sim, there would be fewer complaints about failure to get the paper regularly. For several weeks, Dr. Sim, in common with others living on, on Hernando Street, has failed to get his paper on Sunday mornings. Last Sunday, he posted his carriage driver in the hall with the buggy whip, leaving the door slightly ajar, and instructed him to watch for the thief, whom he was sure had been stealing the papers. 
The carrier passed and threw a paper in, a, in upon the port. The boy did not stir. The carrier was hardly out of sight before a big, strapping, half-grown darky boldly opened the gate, walked up on the porch, and seized the paper. It was hardly in his grasp before Dr. Sims' driver threw open the door and, rushing out, began giving the miscreant a terrible lashing with the whip. He fled down Linden Street, hotly pursued, and was so badly punished that he finally dropped a bundle of papers he had under his arm and escaped. They were all doubled up just as they had been thrown in by the courier. This article is about a railroad strike, the strike at St. Louis. The first serious act of violence by the strikers occurred this morning when a party of five men approached W.W. W. Stanton, a new switchman hired by the Missouri Pacific Company who was tending a switch in the company's yard, and asked him why he was occupying a place of one of the strikers. He replied that he was being paid the wages demanded by the strikers and that what the man whose position he was then feeling should return, he would surrender the place to him. This served to anger the men, and one of them struck Stanton on the temple with a pair of brass knucks, and another hurled a rock at him, which also struck him on the head and knocked him senseless. The assailants then dispersed, but not before one of them, Patton Horn, was arrested. Stanton, it is thought, is not dangerously wounded. Dan Rice Jones and Sam Johnson, two hard young Arabs, were nabbed by Officer Hendrick in front of the museum yesterday for using vile language to a little girl. That's the crime news for the 16th of March, 1886. Please be sure to subscribe and click on like below. But main thing, please come back and join me for another episode of A Year of Crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.